Hey, welcome to In Doubt. Today we have author and professor Owen Strand joining us to talk about the Nashville Statement and the sexual confusion of today's church and world. Human sexuality is, in even Christian circles, sometimes treated as if it doesn't really matter. But think about where it's placed. Think about where the creation of the man and the woman is. It's, it's not buried somewhere, it's right there at the beginning. Hey, it's Isaac. Hope you're all doing well. Now, if you've listened for some time now to In Doubt, you'd know that our, our mission is to bring the gospel to issues of life and faith in hopes to cultivate conversation about those very issues. And as I've thought about it, and it didn't take long to understand this, but this mission really is every Christian's mission to, to apply the truths of the gospel in life. So, to do this, we need to know the gospel. You know, we can keep talking about issues and we can keep, you know, looking at culture and analyzing culture and all that kind of stuff, but none of that is worth it. In fact, it's all in vain if we don't apply the true gospel to it, to the culture. Um, and for a lot of us, you know, when we think about the gospel, you know, we might think something like, you know, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And although that's not wrong, it's not full yet. You know, the, the context is missing. The weight is missing. Um, the terms aren't being defined. So since we need to know the gospel well in order to properly engage life, we're hosting three live stream Bible study events on three consecutive Thursday evenings in October, October 5th, 12th, and 19th, all Thursdays from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pacific time. We're going to be live streaming an intensive study on the book of Romans. One theologian, you may have heard of him, John Stott, has said that Romans is the fullest, plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament. That's why we're spending our time there solely. Now, to do this, we have Dr. John Newfeld teaching. Dr. Newfeld is the Bible teacher at Back to the Bible Canada, and he sits on council at the Gospel Coalition. He's had many years of experience in studying and teaching the Bible, so we're very uh, grateful to have him with us. So, whether this is something you'd want to do alone, or maybe you're going to gather some of your friends in a group, we'd love for you to join with us in growing in knowledge of the Gospel. All the info you need to know can be found at indoubt.ca slash Bible study. Indoubt.ca slash Bible study. Anyways, this week we're looking at the subject of sexuality, a subject that has, you know, always been popular, but seemingly more so in these last few decades. You know, there seems to be a confusion, and sometimes it's known, sometimes it's not known, but anyways, there's a confusion amongst people and even believers in regards to what God's ordered purpose for sexuality really is. To talk with me about this is Dr. Owen Strand, a voice that has spoken much into this very topic and is quite knowledgeable in the area. So I'm super grateful to have him with us. So let's listen to the conversation with Owen Strand. With me today is professor and author Owen Strand. And I'm not going to list everything that he's done because that would take a bit of time, but I will say that he's currently uh, associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And he used to sit as president over the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood as well. So anyways, it's great to have you on the show today, Owen. Thank you so much, Isaac. Great to be with you. Um, before we get into our conversation on sort of the confused sexual state of the church in the world, I, who are you? How did you meet Jesus? Uh, what does your day-to-day -day life look like right now? Uh, I am, wow, that's, that's an interesting <laughs> question. Um, I am a, uh, a speck of dust 
speaking into the void. No, that's a little philosophical. <laughs> true, I, true. I am a professor of systematic theology. Uh, I'm a husband and a father, married to Bethany now for over a decade. I have three little kids okay. and uh, find a ton of, of happiness and satisfaction in, uh, in being a husband and a father. I'm a churchman. I love the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love writing books and have written a few. And, and, uh, and I love teaching students and training the next generation of pastors. So those are a few things about me. That's awesome. And, and your day-to-day life, I mean, if you're an associate professor, I mean, you're probably already into teaching this semester. Yes, I'm actually on sabbatical, so I've taught now for about, yeah, seven years, and so I have successfully entered my first ever sabbatical, oh, so wow. for the full academic year, um, I people people hear that and they think, not you, of course, but they think, you know, <laughs> what on earth are you going to do with your time? And uh, I actually, I have a couple book projects I'm doing, I just did a 365-day devotional uh, with Jonathan Edwards. He is my co-author, though I'm not sure what he <laughs> thinks about being my co-author. And uh, and then I'm going to do I'm going to do a, a biblical anthropology at the academic level. So writing a doctrine of humanity, basically oh from the NH academic. So yeah, full full uh, slate of things to do. Good for you. That that is awesome. You know, and I, as I was kind of looking at you online, I, I noticed that you were a fan of Jonathan Edwards and. Um, it was funny, just this past uh, long weekend in the, in the summer, my wife and I, we decided to go through Freedom of the Will. And uh, we did it slowly, yes. out loud, back and forth to one another. And it was the most brain-challenging thing. But anyways, it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. But Jonathan Edwards, man, he's, uh, he's quite the guy. Yeah, Freedom of the Will is, is not for the faint of heart. It's a very intense text, like uh, most of Edwards's masterworks. Um, but if you, if you can read it, if you can apply yourself to it, it takes a lot of time. I've heard John Piper recommend, you know, a single page a day from those serious, heady treatises of Edwards. Then yeah, it, it richly pays uh, all, the, all the effort, all the undertaking. Oh yeah, for sure. Anyways, okay, let's get into this. Um, at, at the end of last month, there was a statement on biblical sexuality published uh, called the Nashville Statement. Um, in, in brief, Owen, what is this statement all about? Yeah, the Nashville Statement is a statement that is produced by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, which I was formerly president of, now I'm senior fellow of, and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Okay. And it's a statement that basically attempts to provide the Church with clarity about sexual ethics, so what it means to follow Christ, and it offers specific guidance on the matters of homosexuality and transgenderism, matters that uh, basically no one has really spoken up about in a formal sense and defined. And so the Nashville statement, as produced by Denny Burke, John Piper, Russell Moore, Andrew Walker, and others, is an attempt to provide guidance on these very vexing issues before okay. us. Okay, yeah. Now, now for those, uh, Owen, that are kind of unfamiliar with the idea of, of statements in, in church history, um, I guess a question would be, like, can you give us a reason for why they, they are important? Like, why is it even called a, a, a statement? I, I guess the question could be, like, why can't we just, you know, quote-unquote, I'm just going to believe what the Bible says and then not have to adhere to a, a statement? Well, in a perfect world, we would say that, and it would be true, that right. everybody simply believes the Bible, and we go from there, and we don't really need to clarify or define things. Unfortunately, we don't live in a vacuum. Uh, we certainly don't live in a kind of uh, heresy-proof zone. Right. We live in a fallen world, and even the Church, uh, if, if it's not careful, can be led astray by what Second Peter 2 calls false teachers. And so statements have arisen and been written in church history at different points. Uh, I think of the Barman Declaration, 
uh, in the 1930s okay. by German pastors, or I think of the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy right, in right. 1978, and others we could mention. These are statements that are attempting to define what orthodoxy is, what the Bible would have the Church preach and right. profess on a given issue. And so, um, you know, a, a statement doesn't absolutely have to be produced or something like right, this, right. but a, a statement is an attempt usually uh, at least to offer guidance on tough contextual matters. Yeah, for sure. No, that's very good. Thank you for explaining that. Um, you know, one doesn't really have to look long at the evangelical kind of general Christian church in just even North America to find, uh, you know, this major split between a, a more traditional kind of orthodox understanding of what sexuality is and then a more progressive version as well. So, you know, yes. e- even though we both believe in the former, I was wondering if you could just kind of if you'd be willing to try and explain what someone would believe, a self-identifying Christian who believes in this kind of progressive sexuality, how do they how do they see humanity? How do they see God, Jesus, the gospel, and so on? Well, basically, if you really want to zero in to what a progressive Christianity would say about sexual ethics, uh, the answer would be not a whole lot, because mm. um, a sexual progressive is somebody who is not really going to go to the Bible. Uh, for what the intention of God is, obviously, for humanity. A sexual progressive is going to say, uh, along the lines of uh, a secular culture, that I am basically um, a project, and I make myself who I am, and um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not defined by anyone outside right. of myself. I'm kind of my own authority. This is drafting off of—we'd have to do a deep dive that we don't have time for— but this is drafting off of what you could call an enlightenment conception of the human person, where we essentially build from the ground up who we are, and we don't receive any kind of identity from God or from the Scripture or any external authority. Along those lines, if I feel certain desires coursing through me, uh, raging in me, I don't need to assume that those desires need to be remade. They're not disordered, necessarily. That's just who I am. Suffice it to say that on matters of sexuality, as on many different matters, you know, anger, for example, just because I have a temper that flares up frequently in my everyday life doesn't mean that I then say my identity is that of an angry person. Right. Uh, right. I'm not going to I'm not going to correct this desire. I'm going to kind of own it. No, many of us, whether Christian or non-Christian, would say, "Okay, yeah, let's uh, let's work with that temper (laughs) because the outbursts need to stop. Um, right, so, right, right, right. Yeah, anyway. Now, there seems to be some uh, pushback, especially with Article 10 on uh, the Nashville Statement. I'll read this uh, article to you. It says this, uh, We affirm that it is sinful to approve of homosexual immorality or transgenderism, and that such approval constitutes an essential departure from Christian faithfulness and witness. And then, we deny that the approval of homosexual immorality or transgenderism is a matter of moral indifference, about which otherwise faithful Christians should agree to disagree. Now, there has been some pushback because there have been a lot of self-identifying Christians saying that that is very... I mean, they're, they're pretty much saying, you're telling me that I'm not a Christian uh, when they approve of homosexuality and transgenderism. So, uh, yeah, kind of flesh this out a little bit. Yeah, it's, uh, this is a tough matter, and there's a, a, a ranging, wide-ranging discussion over this issue. Uh, one of the places that has gone is gay Christianity, uh, just to cut right to the quick. Some folks today identify as gay Christians. Right. Uh, I would stand with many others in saying that uh, somebody can definitely experience same-sex attraction in an ongoing way and walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Really, um, 
really the, the debate is over terminology. Is it a sound and healthy thing to call yourself a gay Christian or uh, a transgender Christian or some such term? Right. I would have some serious reservations about that, uh, reservations that are expressed in, in a form there in Article 10. Right. I wouldn't, for example, say I'm an alcoholic Christian or, right. God forbid, a pedophilic Christian. Yeah. I, I would say I'm a Christian, and yes, I have my struggles to fight, as everybody does, but I'm in no way going to base or ground my identity in, you know, any any sinful behavior, anything the Bible does not affirm. So that's that's uh, what what I would respond uh, to that question. But it's it's a it's a, an issue that the church is definitely debating, and I'm I'm praying with many others that yeah. that will come out on the right side of that. Yeah, no, that that's good, Owen. And I, I guess to sort of take on to that too, um, w- would you say that the differing views on biblical sexuality? Um, differ from, let's say, differing views on eschatology. Um, you, you know, so, sometimes when we think about, you know, end times theories, let's just say, for example, we can say, like, we can agree to disagree with other Christians, but it cannot be the same with uh, sexual beliefs. That's a great question. Um, uh, I would say that, you know, you want to go to a place like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 in Scripture, where Paul speaks to uh, both participants in a homosexual encounter and, and says that such were some of you to the Corinthian church, mm-hmm. to a sexually compromised church. So Paul is actually speaking to uh, a people who are mired in much more significant cultural sexual sin right. than we are. Corinth would make, you know, Manhattan blush, uh, first century <laughs> Corinth, that is. Right. So, um, or, or, you know, Toronto or Quebec or whatever, whatever major city you want to choose sure. that, uh, that, that flaunts some of these sexual conventions, biblical conventions. Um, so I would say, yes, there are matters that Christians have essentially, uh, to use kind of an overused phrase, agreed to disagree about. Yeah. I don't think that um, homosexuality is one, uh, okay. that the, the Church finds uh, a great deal of room to disagree about. The historic Church has not taken that position. The modern Church has not taken that position. Right. Uh, the Bible, I don't think, takes that position. I do think that there are some matters in Scripture, frankly, yeah. that are clearer than others, and I'm glad to confess that, and I teach that in my systematic theology class <laughs> That's good. here at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City. So I just want you to know, Isaac, and your listeners to know, I don't mean to be talking out of both sides of my mouth. Right. There are matters, even, even um, you know, the age of the earth, for example. Sure. Uh, people take the biblical text seriously, but come to slightly different conclusions. Right. But, you know, when it comes to sexuality, either the behavior is right or wrong. Um, mm. so there's not a lot of give there. Right. And uh, right. I, I would I would say we just need to go back to some of these core texts and search them out afresh. Yeah, no, that that's really good. Uh, you know, Owen, as you've you know obviously sat on as a president and still are affiliated with uh, the Council of Biblical Manhood Womanhood, um, I guess a question would be how important do you see uh, how important is it for Christians of all ages, but especially young adults today, um, to really study the Bible's true teaching on sexuality? That's a very general question, but I just want to see your kind of understanding of how important is this at our, in our day and age right now. Yeah, it's like giving a T-bone to a Labrador. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say, I would say um, that we need to be very careful and think hard about a paradigm that holds out sexual ethics or any other matter as if it is uh, adiaphora, you know, a, a theological matter that doesn't essentially matter. Evangelicals in the 20th century got pretty used to a kind of doctrinal ranking system okay. where we'd have primary, secondary, tertiary doctrine, and we would say, oh, that's a primary doctrine, so we're going to hold to that. Right. Uh, tertiary doctrine doesn't really matter. Now, 
of course, we can all admit that there are some doctrines that are closer to the burning core than others. And I'm, I'm one of those evangelicals who would affirm that. Right. But we also want to just be careful. Jesus says that neither jot nor tittle will pass away from the law. His, his law, of course, is law of love, new covenant law. And so when, when we're thinking about the teaching of God, we just need to know this. God doesn't give us a ranking system for the Bible. So we want to approach every doctrine, every verse, every passage, not as if we're doing ethical theological buffet, but as if we are seeking to obey it and live by it in the fullest possible extent. So um, these matters are core matters, just really quickly to to further answer your question. Human sexuality is, uh, in even Christian circles, sometimes treated, perhaps because it's divisive, let's be honest, uh, in a a secular culture, as if it doesn't really matter. But think about where it's placed. Think about where the creation of the man and the woman is. It's it's not it's not buried somewhere. It's right there at the beginning. Yeah. Um, man and woman uh, come almost as soon as the heavens and the earth and the skies come. So uh, Genesis one and two, I would encourage us all, you know, myself, to return to hmm. those foundational texts that give us human origins. And I don't think, by the way, that Genesis two is a tome poem. I think that it's actually displaying how God makes the man and the woman. Yeah. And, uh, if, if we toy with that, then we're going to end up some interesting places when we try to defend yeah. actual, real manhood and actual, real womanhood. Yeah, no, that that's great. Uh, okay, so the last sort of three questions I, I would like you to uh, to answer to the best of your ability um, are sort of um, responses that you would give um, to these three scenarios. So the first one is this, what would you say uh, to a non-Christian uh, listening to this right now who, who th- who's thinking, you know, and this is the reason why I can't stand Christianity. They're always, you know, bickering with one another about these different issues, especially about sexuality. So yeah, what, what would you say to a, a non-Christian who, who, who thinks that way? I would say that um, Christians Christians will split churches over the color of the carpet. So do not <laughs> underestimate our ability to disagree with one another. That's good. Having That's grown up in having grown up in small church Baptist circles in Maine, very near to Canada, yeah. in my youth. So I've seen that firsthand. Um, <laughs> I would I would go on to say that actually uh, sexuality is a key part of human flourishing. So God has a plan for men. God has a plan. For women, God calls men to be the head of their wife, Ephesians 5. God God calls men to be elders and pastors in the local church, 1 Timothy 2. And yes, there's disagreement among genuine evangelicals over these matters, but disagreement doesn't mean that there is no such thing as truth. We have to search out what the truth is. So I I would want an unbeliever to see that sexuality is not um, a matter to be sorted out long after one figures out, you know, the historicity of Christ, the truthfulness of the resurrections, something like this. Right. Uh, you look at a, a person like Rosaria Butterfield, for yeah. example, who is a professor of queer studies at Syracuse University in New York, and you just recognize, for her, as with so many today, actually obeying God's plan for human sexuality is a huge part of coming to faith. Mm. So I would want that skeptical friend to understand that, to see that as best they could, as best right. I could make it clear, yeah. and also even Christians to, to, to see that vital truth. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so the next scenario would be this. What, what would you say to a Christian who has come now uh, to the realization that they, they have to make a decision on, on where to stand if they're going to go along with what the world says sexuality is and that even some of the church is saying, yep, you can keep doing that, or on the other side. So if they're unsure on, on kind of where to stand, how would you sort of best counsel them in this? 
I would say um, they need to know that faith in Jesus Christ is going to cost them everything, mm. and that we are not in the business in coming to faith, uh, however well-intentioned in this endeavor, of bartering just how much of our former lives we're going to hold on to right. and how much we're going to give away. I think of Rosaria's story. Uh, you can read about that story. Listeners uh, can in her book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I think mm. also the story uh, of another lesbian woman, interestingly, Jackie Hill Perry, yeah. who's a spoken word artist here in the States. Jackie was also a lesbian and also was confronted by the claims of Christ and also saw that she was going to have to radically leave her sin. Mm. That's true even if you don't have this dramatic uh, conversion narrative, though. Right. I mean, the person who never acts, for example, on you know a desire, forget homosexuality for a minute, but never acts on that desire to lustfully engage in heterosexual behavior right. uh, outside the covenant of marriage, um, that in itself is a dying to self. We've got to recover death to self, yeah. carrying, carrying one's cross, as the essential mark of Christianity, the, the essential mark of treasuring Christ. Every single day, we take that cross up and, and we follow him, and there's no, there's no bartering those terms away. Yeah, no, that that's really good. Uh, it just remi- as you say, that kind of reminds me of when Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship, and just like you, you have to consider that before we even kind of think about it. So, totally, it's really important. Um, the the last one was this: What would you say to a Christian who who believes in you know orthodox historical biblical sexuality and seeks to make a difference in our sexually confused church and world? So may- maybe this young adult is in a church, let's say that. Maybe the church leaders are condoning, you know, uh, more worldly ideas or ideologies of sexuality, or maybe their friends are thinking this. What would you say to help them take a stance and sort of help this confused state? Well, let me let me say one word and then a direct answer. Okay. Um, I, I've actually co-written a book that answers some of these questions. Okay. I've written it with a Canadian pastor named Gavin Peacock. Oh, awesome. Gavin formerly captained Chelsea, the, the English soccer club, English Premier League. Um, uh, for for a number of years and was a a star, really a soccer star, before giving it all up, Mm. moving to Canada, Canmore in Alberta, and becoming a pastor. And so we wrote a book called The Grand Design, Male and Female, He Made Them for Christian Focus. And The Grand Design has uh, answers. It's a short book, but it has answers to a number of these questions. Okay, I would say to somebody, yeah, thank you. I would say to somebody who is in a church that is compromised on these matters or is perhaps moving a bit or exploring, you know, can we kind of have some sort of truce with the world? Can we can we call people out of certain behaviors but mm. still allow them to retain an identity? You know, all these sorts of things that, yeah. that honestly good-hearted people are trying to work through. I would just say, know that probably if you are not the senior pastor, your ability to affect change in a church is going to be limited. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean that you leave right away. Uh, right. I wouldn't say that. I know faithful believers in, in churches and denominations that uh, don't hold exactly what I would see as biblical truth, but they're trying to be a light there. Right. I would say, though, that you really feel, uh, to use a cheesy phrase, the wind beneath your wings when you are linking arms, because church membership, let's be honest, is linking arms with people. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a it's a living fellowship. It's not just your name on a piece of paper. Um, you're going to feel, you know, God's pleasure, to quote Eric Liddell, when you are with believers who love the truths of the Word of God. And so what I'm praying for in America and Canada, all over the world, is that there will be a recovery of a love for the Word of God. Forget sexual ethics, right. just a, a wholehearted, full-throated confidence 
in biblical doctrine, and that there will be many, many more churches planted by by faithful men who yeah. go out and 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 sound these things, shake the rafters with these truths, and lovingly call sinners. Yeah. to faith, uh, total repentance, not partial repentance, but total repentance in the name of Jesus Christ. That's where I think you're really going to see yeah, that's uh, good. The, the gospel spread and take root in people's lives. Yeah, no, that's awesome, Owen. Uh, you know, this this obviously, it's such a short period of time, so we're going to have to cut it short here. But Owen, if people want to read more uh, from what you've done, maybe articles, books, is there some place that they can go uh, online to, to find that? Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm on Twitter. Uh, the handle is at O-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N, at O-S-T-R-A-C-H-A-N. I can't even spell my own Twitter handle. <laughs> and then um, I have a website where I post articles on sexual ethics and many other matters. The website is the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Seminary here in Kansas City. The website address, very quickly, is cpt.mbts.edu. That's cpt.mbts.edu. And uh, that's a place to go. The book that I mentioned is The Grand Design. Yeah. Uh, so those are those are some resources for folks. That's awesome. Thank, well, you. thank you so much, Owen, for your time and your wisdom today. Again, uh, if you're listening and you just heard Owen say all those places, I'll put all those links to the websites and to that book, Grand Design, all these different things on the episode page. But again, thank you so much, Owen. I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks a ton, Isaac. That was Dr. Owen Strand. You know, one of the things I just wanted to emphasize regarding what Owen said was the cost of discipleship, the cost of sacrificing everything for Jesus. You know, consider the passage from Luke 14, 25 to 33. I'm just going to read it. Uh, it says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know, it doesn't matter if what we have or what we believe to be true is good or sinful, we, we must renounce all we have to be a disciple of Jesus. You know, Jesus desires our undivided devotion to him. So consider the cost he paid, right? The suffering and sorrow he experienced. And then be encouraged knowing that, you know, you can go to him, you can go to Jesus, we all can go to Jesus for strength to help us, you know, rid ourselves from any devotion that's not towards him. Well, I hope this week's conversation was both helpful and encouraging. We'd love to hear your thoughts or questions. Just message us on Facebook, uh, tweet us, comment under an Instagram photo, or email us at info at Also, if you're an iTunes listener, I'd encourage you to rate and review our show. It uh, just really helps get our show out there more. And if in doubt is a ministry that you can stand up for, as in, you know, you believe and support the mission to bring the gospel to issues of life and faith, 
that I encourage you to consider and pray about giving financially. You know, whether it's $5 or $1,000, every little bit helps since everything we do is supported by those who believe in our mission. If you'd like to donate, just click the donate button when you go to indoubt.ca if you live in Canada or indoubt.com if you live in the States. Well, I'm Isaac and next week we have some intelligent fun as Justin Briley from Unbelievable, the apologetics radio show in the UK, debates Apologetics Canada director Andy Steiger. We'll see you then. Indoubt Ministries exist to bring a biblical perspective into the relevant issues of life and faith that young adults face every day. For more information, check out indoubt.ca if you live in Canada and indoubt.com if you live in the US.